Thank you, Brother Dan. We are continuing our study on the divine inspiration of God's Word. And for the last couple of weeks, we're looking at the uh, typical significance of the Bible and the fact that the Old Testament typifies a lot of what takes place in the New Testament is certainly another internal evidence of divine authorship. There is no way the human mind could come up with what God did. Now, again, did God use human writers? Yes, he did. But he breathed his word out, and they penned it as God wanted it. Our our base verses are in Hebrews 10, also John 5. Let's read Hebrews 10, verse 7. Somebody got that? Thank you, Dan. John 5, 39. Somebody got that? John says, search the Scriptures. Actually, Jesus said John recorded it. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jesus. Where Jesus said in the volume of the book, it is written of me. John, Jesus says, that the scriptures are they which testify of him. Now, we talked about this already for two weeks, but what scriptures was he talking about? The Old Testament. Why do we know that? There was no new yet. And, and so, again, the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the key to the Word of God. And that's why Jesus said, search the Scriptures, not the Gospels. Now, again, they're good today, but they weren't available when Jesus made that statement. Now, we've been looking at this internal evidence, and I want you to realize that we're going to highlight some of them tonight, just kind of touch back on them. But the things, the events that happened in the Old Testament... They were actual events. They occurred in real time and in real life. But also, most of them were typical prefigurations of what God would do through the Lord Jesus Christ and in the New Testament. Now, first of all, uh, again, Jesus had searched the Scriptures. They testify of me in the volume of the book. It's written of me, so it's about him. And so when we think about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as God inspired men to write the Bible under the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, God, the first thing he does, he gives a series of pictorial representations. And that's interesting. We'll just touch on a couple of them tonight. But we think about the law that God gave, the tabernacle that God had Moses to build, all the ceremonies, all the rituals. Every one of those somehow typified a, a part and a work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives, if you will, a series of visual aids, okay, I'll put it for lack of a better word, to present the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when you get into the major prophets and some of the minor prophets, we find that God gives uh, quite a few specific prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's think about it for a moment. Uh, when we think about these prophecies, who else 
could these be talking about? No one. Only Jesus fits the bill, okay? So he gives us those prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts with pictures, if you will, then specific prophecies. And, of course, uh, Paul wrote in Galatians, when the fullness of time was come, he sent forth his son. So finally, his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1, speaks about how God in times past spoke in various ways, different manners, but now he speaks through the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything in the Old Testament progressively leads up to the coming of the Messiah. Again, showing the typical significance of the Old Testament. We looked at the, uh, uh, you know, unless we are able to draw from the Old Testament and at least see how it does typify the work of Christ or Christ himself, we're going to miss out on a whole lot. We're going to miss out on a whole lot. Now, does every verse, every word? No, not that. But a lot of things in the Old Testament are, are typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. We took some time and we looked at the Pentateuch, some of the verses there. And again, uh, for most of it, it's not our favorite part of reading. Uh, when you get into Exodus or Leviticus and even sometimes Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, some of the rituals and the laws they had, uh, if we're not careful, that they become dry and boring. But the problem is, it's only when we don't see Christ in that, okay? And, and we're going to look at one of them today, later on in our, in our uh, topic tonight, in our teaching. And it's, it's just exciting me to, to read about that, and I want to share it later on. But also understand... Uh, even the typical importance of the Old Testament, uh, the importance of the spiritual part of the Jewish uh, economy, if you will, and as a whole and in parts, certainly they are expressly affirmed in the New Testament. Uh, go back to Romans 15, verse 4. Somebody read that, please. When Paul mentioned the things that are written aforetime, what's he talking about? The Old Testament. So we, we've got to import that. And we're not, I don't have the verse in 9 in Corinthians, but Paul also said the same thing when he wrote the church at Corinth. And then we went back to, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we saw how God worked in, in creation, but also the new creation. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 1. Somebody read that again. What's that verse tell us? So if somebody asks you who created everything, what are you going to tell them? What do you mean, Dan? What about the Big Bang Theory? What about evolution? Whatever. No. God created. Okay, we, that's under, we understand that, okay? But look at verse 2. And I look at this and I think, wow, look what God is doing here. Uh, the Bible says that without form it was void, there was darkness on the face of the deep. And then all of a sudden the Spirit of God begins to move. And it's kind of strange. I, didn't, I, I really didn't catch that uh, in detail until I, I got here tonight. And I, I'd like to find out what maybe some of the theologians would say about that. But all we know for sure is 
the Spirit of God begin to move. And when God's Spirit begins to move, what happens? Something happens. Amen, Dan. Change begins to take place. Now, we're not going to take time to read the entire chapter. But on day one, God decided he wanted light. So what did he do? Say it again, Lavenda. What do you mean by that? And there was light. So we have the Spirit of God moving. We have the Word of God now, okay? And, and by the way, you'll see that throughout the first chapter, God speaking things into existence. And like you said, Lavenda, when God wanted light, he just spoke it. Now think about that. He used it in creation, the Spirit of God and his Word. Does he use it in the new birth? Yes. The Spirit of God and His Word. And it's interesting. In reality, when we are born again and we come to Christ, God says, let there be light. And what? There's light. There's light in our lives. So we see how the Old Testament connects with the New. Again, a a definite evidence of divine inspiration. Second Corinthians four six. Thank you, Dan. Now remember, on day one when God commanded light to come, what was what was the only thing there before light came? Darkness. And Paul's referring back to that time when God commanded that light come out of darkness, to shine out of darkness, Paul said that same God, that same light has now shone in our lives when we're born again. God commands that light, His light, to shine into our lives. So we see the typical significance of even the beginning of creation and new creation. We also went to Genesis 3.21. Somebody read that, please. Why did God do that? But why were they naked? The way God made, but why did why were they ashamed now? Because of what? Sin. And God covered their nakedness. Now keep that in mind. God clothed them. Now in Luke chapter fifteen we have the parable of the prodigal son. And look what the father did in chapter fifteen of Luke verse twenty two. Luke 15, verse 22. So in Genesis 3, 21, God took those coats of skin and he clothed Adam and Eve. Now, again, I think we agree that it was real animal skins. And to get an animal skin, you got to do what? Kill the animal. But it was more than just that. It was a covering for their sin. And that covering made them righteous. In Luke 15, 22, we find the father, the son comes back. And he's already rehearsed in his mind 
uh, what are you going to say to that? Uh, but nonetheless, it didn't matter. When he got there, his father put on him a robe. And this speaks of the robe of righteousness which Christ provides for us. He covers our sin. In chapter 4, we look at the offering Cain and Abel brought before God. Let's read verses 3 through 5 again. And we kind of covered this in quite a bit of detail last week, but just to remind you that both brought an offering to God. Did God accept both offerings? No. One was accepted. One was rejected. So, Dan, I can't believe you asked that question like that. I mean, even Rick can answer that question. <laughs> no, that's a good question. Uh, we know from the writer of Hebrews uh, that the reason God accepted because uh, when Cain brought his sacrifice, it wasn't by faith. Abel brought his by faith, according to Hebrews. Okay, all right, that's a good question. Another, you know, I give you one question tonight, Dan, so be careful here, okay? You're pushing your luck, and that's a good point. What do, what do we mean by faith? What does faith really mean at the bottom line? Say it again. Belief without proof. And Dan, that is such a great question because in, in, in Romans 4, Paul talks about that. God told Abraham, your wife is going to have a baby in nine months. What was the problem with that as far as Abraham concerned? What about his wife? She was old, past childbearing. Where's the proof, Alan? The Paul said Abraham believed God. He believed God. And that's where it has to come. Because without faith, Hebrews 11.6, I think that's the right verse, it's impossible to please God. Now, Dan, again, back, to, and which is, you know, what we need to understand. You see, and I always get these guys confused, make sure I'm right here. Abel was the one who brought the sheep or whatever it was. And well, I think we have to realize, I don't believe these guys were teenagers. Do you? They were grown men. And I have no doubt in my mind they would have reckoned it ought to have been taught by their parents what to bring to God. But again, Abel realized, you know, I'm nobody. I deserve to die, and God is the only one who can help me out of this. Cain, on the other hand, thought, well, I can, I can grow a pretty good garden. I can do this on my own, and I can please God. And so what we're seeing here, again, an actual event. But one came by faith. And really all 
Cain was doing was what God had told his dad to do, to cultivate the ground. Just doing his duty. So my question is, and as we think about, and what a great question, Dan, about this faith thing. What is it we can do on our own to please God? Nothing. If we're going to come, we have to come by faith. And, and Dan, I really think that's why some people struggle with salvation. You know, tell me to climb a mountain. You know, tell me to walk across this tightrope. You know, tell me to do something so I can earn. But what can we do to earn it? Nothing. So, and again, even though we're not giving a lot of detail, uh, and I, my mind has flipped me, but we read a verse last night from John, uh, one of John's letters, talking about Cain and Abel. But the bottom line is, Cain came on his own works. And Abel simply came by faith. So my question would be then, Dan, what a great question you had there about faith, on the same basis. How could the blood of an animal, what, in fact, Abel brought, how could that please God? Why? Why would it please God? There's only one reason. Because God said so. This is how you do it. I've been preaching Sunday night on the incense that was placed before the Holy of Holies. And the ingredients, we're not done there yet. But I, I want to tell you folks, I believe the scripture backed this up. If there would have been one ingredient off in that, would God accept it? Why? It had to be like he says. And so, for whatever reason, Abel pleased God because he believed God, but Cain came in a wrong attitude. Now, also remember, too, it's not really part of our text tonight, but did you, did you notice that God gave Cain a second chance? He warned him. He said, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. And if you don't deal with this, it is going to overcome you. And guess what happened? It overcame him. And he killed his own brother. Dan, you've had two questions. That's it, buddy. But yeah, thank you, Dan. Those, those are really great questions. And, and one, I'm glad to take the time. Are, are, is that, anybody got a question else on that that I didn't explain well enough? But it has to be by faith. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that's exactly how Abel came. He came by faith. So it was by faith he presented an offering to God, and God accepted it. And here's the thing, folks. If we are going to come to God for salvation, do we come telling God how great we are? Do we come telling him how good we are? No. That's what Cain did wrong. He refused to take the place of a lost sinner before God. And if we're going to be saved, if God's going to accept our offering, we've got to take the place of a lost sinner before God. We also looked at Noah's Ark, Genesis 7, verse 1. Anybody want to read that?
Again, we're looking for how the Old Testament typifies the New. And in Noah's day, if you were going to get saved, how many arks were there? Just one. In our day, how many arks are there? And who is that ark? Jesus Christ. Just one. So again, we see it typified in the Old Testament. And I want to remind you again, what a great evidence of divine inspiration. There's no way man would have come up with this like that. Uh, by the way, I, I have a, a Thompson Chain reference Bible. And uh, I, I don't know how big it is. It's about this big, too heavy to carry. And so I always keep it at my desk uh, on my office. And uh, Thompson came out long before computers and word searches and things like that. And they've got great concordance. They, they trace a lot of things, but their numerical system was a great study Bible. Uh, my grandmother used one for years, uh, again, before the time of computers and things like that. And, but I, I, I was noticing in the, in, in the first pages of the book, uh, of the Bible there, they show a picture, and it's about the inspiration of God's Word. And it shows a river flowing from Genesis, coming around curving, 400 silent years in a member in the middle of it, if you will, and then flowing on to the book of Revelation. And beginning from Genesis all the way through, in that river, the words are written, divine inspiration. Why is that? It's all of it inspired from God from Genesis to Revelation. All right, we got Noah's Ark. And then we know that uh, Israel spent a period of time in Egypt, about 400 years, give or take a few there. And we find that God brings them out. Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus 1, 13 and 14. All right, thank you, Dan. That's interesting. Here in Exodus chapter 1, as Dan, you read those verses... Uh, if you were to ask one of the Israelites then, what did they want more than anything else? They wanted freedom. They wanted deliverance from that horrible life. What did they need? A Savior, someone to bring them out. They needed deliverance. They wanted it and they needed it. So God raises up Moses. To bring them out of that life. Now again, typified of and in the New Testament. Because that exactly speaks of us as well. Because you and I, before we came to Christ, we were living in darkness. We were living in a world without God. And we were living in a world without hope. And when I think about what was going on in the early part of Exodus, what kind of hope did the Israelites have? None. No, absolutely not. And we were there in our own lives. And just like they were in bondage to those cruel taskmasters, we were in bondage to the taskmaster of sin and of Satan. And no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't break free. So what did we need? We needed a Savior. And we needed deliverance. And we see that typified in the Old Testament.
You know the story of the Exodus, and by the time you get to chapter 12 of Exodus, God had given Pharaoh his last chance. And God told the Jews tonight, kill that Passover lamb. And you take that blood and put it over the lintel and the side post of your doors and get inside that house. Because tonight I'm going to pass over it. And every firstborn in the nation of Israel, from the least to the greatest, even other animals, I'm sorry, of the nation of Egypt is going to die. But when I pass over and I see that blood, what am I going to do? I'm going to pass over your house. Their only way for them to be saved that night was the blood. And if we're going to be saved, what's the only way? The blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot miss the typical significance of that. And aren't you glad that 2,000 years ago, a lamb was slain for us? A lamb was slain for us. And God now says, when I see the blood, you ought to write a song about that. I will pass over you. What a promise. And that promise is ours. Colossians 1.13. Amen. Now think about this. Talking about being delivered from the power of darkness and translating us into the kingdom of his dear son. Let me explain that a little bit. Paul is saying there was one time we were over here. We were over here in the kingdom of darkness. But God, working through Jesus Christ, has taken us and he's translated from the kingdom of darkness over here now into the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. How real glad God did that for you through Christ. That's exactly what God has done for us. So you know the story in Exodus, how they left Egypt. And once they left Egypt, everything was hunky-dory. You're smiling, Paul Wheeler. <laughs> oh, you don't saw Paul said you didn't see it that way. Well, you're right, Brother Paul. It wasn't quite. They had a long journey, didn't they? And there were battles going on, and there were enemies to fight. There was pride to overcome, sin to overcome. And I think you'd agree they were passing through a strange country. And I don't know how soon it was. It wasn't long. They began to realize something. We can't do it on our own. Early on, they became hungry and thirsty. What did they need? Water and food. What could they do about it? What could they do about it? Nothing. And we have to understand that as well. You and I who have been saved, typically we've been brought out of Egypt. And just like they were inadequate, so were we. And if they were going to make it through that wilderness, to the promised land, 
They had to cast their cares upon God. And my friend, if we're going to make the journey, guess what? He got to do the same thing. But aren't you glad <laughs> that God didn't leave us alone? Jesus said, I'm not leaving his orphans. If I go away, I'll send another comforter. And thank the Lord, he has given us ample provision. He's given us plenty of grace. And he furnishes grace for every need we have. We simply need to depend on him. Did you ever notice how sometimes Jesus had a way of ruffling the feathers of the religious people? In John 6, he had just, I mean, he just, and that happened, he had just fed the 5,000, I think in John 5, but in John 6, he's preaching, having Bible study. And the Jews were so proud, man, their fathers had eaten manna in the, in the wilderness, caught the bread from God. And uh, Jesus said, you're right, they did. But where are they all at now? They did. They ate the so-called bread from God, and they still died. But Jesus said, if you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you will never die. So that manna and food, and it supplied their need, without a doubt. But it typified of a greater need that Christ would supply in our lives. What a God we serve. What a God who knows the beginning from the end and how to put everything together in between. And what great interior evidence for the divine inspiration of the Word of God. Because today, for you and I, there is heavenly manna. It's not in the grass in the morning before the dew dries. Doesn't look like coriander seed and tastes like honey and wafers. But this heavenly manna now is the exceeding great and precious promises that God gives us every day. And aren't you glad that God says there's a table spread? A table spread. And guess what He invites us to do? Come and eat. Come and Dine. I want to go to John chapter 7 for the remainder of our time together tonight. And I mentioned earlier how even the feast that the Jews celebrated during the year pointed to Christ. Let's read verse 7, 37 through 39, John 7, then we'll come back and make some comments. Thank you, Dan. Now, early in the book of, of the chapter 7 of John, we are told that this is the Feast of the Tabernacles. And at this point in his ministry, 
the half-brothers of Jesus did not believe he was the Messiah. And um, I'll be paraphrasing for the most part, but he, they came to him and said, you know what? Uh, you claim to be the Messiah. There's a feast going on, and you know what it is, and now would be a great time to go there and pull off some of your miracles. That's a paraphrase. Show us who you really are. Alan, you said something a while ago about believing. Without what? Without proof. Okay, yeah. Uh, they wanted what? Proof. I thank God before we left this world, they were born again. Amen. And if one brother James became a leader of the church, another brother wrote the book of Jude that we have. He had two more. So it is the Feast of the Tabernacles. And Jesus told them he wasn't going to go at that time. Now, he did go later. And again, my thought on that is it's only my opinion. I think he didn't want to go in with the big crowds. He simply kind of slipped in unnoticed. He didn't, didn't desire to draw attention. So this is the Feast of the Tabernacles. And uh, whenever there's a feast, what would happen in Jerusalem? Would come. Now, there were three festivals that were required for every Jew to return. Now, my mind is... My memory has slipped me. I'm not sure if this is one of them, but it may well have been. But anyway, any of the festivals, there would be a large influx of Jews coming in from all over the world. And this would be no different. So we have the Feast of the Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Ingathering. And it was celebrated from the 15th day of the month to the 22nd day of the seventh month. About our October, if you will. And it was actually a, a thanksgiving for the harvest. But also during the Feast of the Tabernacles for seven days, they would dwell in booths or tabernacles or tents. So it's sometimes called the Feast of the Booths. And they would dwell in those makeshift shelters to commemorate how they lived their life during the 40 years of wilderness journey. And so it was very important to the Jews. But John says it was now the last day. And so this would be the eighth day of the festival. And this was the climax. And during this Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would celebrate how God had protected their ancestors as they traveled across the wilderness to the Promised Land. Celebrated how God had guided them and provided them with manna and even water from a rock. On the first day of this feast, a priest would stand before the assembled there, and he would read from Zechariah 14, verse 8. Anybody got that? So every day of this feast except for the last day. 
a priest would stand in front of the temple and he would hold in his hand a golden pitcher filled with water. Water. And he would take that water and he would have a rock in front of him. And every day he would pour that water on to a rock. And the priest did that to commemorate the water flowing out of that rock that gave the Jews water to drink during the time they traveled. And as the priest is pouring out that water, the people who'd gathered there would stand by and they would chant Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the well of salvation. So every day of this feast, except the eighth, they performed that ceremony. But on the eighth day, no ceremony, they offered public prayers for continued rain. Now think about it for just a moment. Can you imagine? That priest steps out on day one. And he says to those gathered there, in that day, living water shall go out from Jerusalem. And can you imagine as the priest read that, and every day as they poured the water on the rock, the crowd would chant with joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. Wow, can you imagine being there? But what was the problem? What was the problem? You remember the woman at the well? I know you do. And Jesus said, if you'd ask me for something to drink, I'd give you what? Yeah. A water you would never what? Thirst again. And the woman is so excited. I don't have to come back here anymore with my bucket. But was Jesus talking about that kind of water? No. And I think about this. I don't know how many years the Jews had celebrated this like they, like they did when Christ was on this earth. Certainly throughout most of the Old Testament time, but Certainly there were times during the kings they had evil kings. They probably didn't, but whatever. But it had gone on for some time. And they thought, you know, on the eighth day, their mindset was, we have to pray for rain. But do you think when God inspired Zechariah, to write in chapter 14, verse 8, in that day, living water will go out from Jerusalem? You think God was talking about wet water? No! 
But praying for rain... Diverted their attention from the yet unfulfilled need for living water. Now, by the way, whether it be the woman at the well in John 4, or these Jews here in John 7, do they need physical water? Yes. But Jesus is saying, in essence, you need more than that. More than that. So on the eighth day, no ceremonies, per se, it was as though that they shrugged their shoulders and settled for the immediate need of rain rather than falling before God and saying, we need living water. But the promise still remains. And think about that. Eight days, I mean seven days of ceremony, the eighth day they're praying. All that being said, no one could really take a drink of water. And as a result, they were still we don't know for sure but can you imagine I wonder what Jesus would think as he watched all this take place and I'm only guessing I think number one he's broken hearted because they missed it they missed the spiritual significance So John says that on the last day of that great feast, the day that no water was poured out, Jesus said, and John said he said it with a loud voice, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Whoa. That threw a wrench in the cogwheel. This great celebration, praying for rain. And Jesus says, forget about this rock. Forget about this priest. If you're thirsty, come to who? Come to me. And by the way, Jesus said, come to me and drink. And we're in the New Testament. And yet, that statement reveals, at least alludes to the theme of a lot of Bible verses that talk about the Messiah's life-giving blessings. Not just physical water. 
Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3. Life-giving Messiah. Isaiah 44, verse 3 and 4. Isaiah 44, verse 3 and 4. Again. Messiah's life-giving blessing. Isaiah 58, verse 11. Again, the Messiah's life-giving blessings. So here in John 7... When Jesus gave that promise to give the Holy Spirit to all who believed, he was claiming to be the Messiah. Because the Jews realized only the Messiah could do that. Only the Messiah could do that. Now again, there's no particular verse in the Old Testament that says expressly that out of the belly shall flow rivers of living water. But a lot of scholars believe that Christ was paraphrasing Psalm 78, verse 16. Anybody got that one? Thank you, Dan. In this passage in Psalm 78, it bears the closest meaning to what Jesus said, and it affirms that Jesus himself referred to himself as the smitten rock. Now you remember when the first time when Moses went to the rock God said Moses smite the rock. And what did Moses do? He smote the rock. What happened? Water came out. And that was life sustaining water even though it was physical water that they needed desperately. But there was a second time they needed water. And this time, God said to Moses, go to the rock and speak to the rock. What's the difference? Christ was crucified how many times? Once. Why? Say it again, Lavenda. That's all it took. Moses smote the rock once early on. But the second time, God said, just speak to the rock. Can we speak to the rock today? Yeah. But the second time, Moses was angry with the people. He was frustrated. And instead of following God's orders, he smote the rock again. Did that cost him something? It cost him going into the promised land. And that's why Jesus referred to himself as a smitten rock. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Jesus was that rock. Without a doubt, Christ became the true smitten rock by being crucified on the cross. And because he died for our sins, he now gives out living water. Living water. Even before the crucifixion, Jesus suffered the blows of persecution. He suffered insult and unbelief. He didn't retreat. He didn't withdraw when suffering came. And hear me well. He took the smiting as a chance to let living waters flow and give life to you and me. Give life to others. You see, our response, going back to what you said, I just believe. Believe in Jesus so that He would give us the living water of the Holy Spirit flowing in us and over us. Now, by the way, can you imagine that? Every Jew there who heard what Jesus said, they knew how important water was. And they knew, just like we know, that if you don't have water, what's going to happen to your crops? Yeah, they're not going to make it. And, and so they didn't take water from granted, for granted. And so Jesus takes this rare, precious commodity, and he takes it, and he makes it an effectual and a very effective symbol. I don't know about anybody here, but I remember the first house that we lived in. It was one my my, my great-grandmother owned. And... Uh, we had running water inside the house. It was on the on the counter, a pump. Huh? Yeah, it was red. And 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 I, you know, now I remember it, and I know I was five years old. We moved from there, you know. But anyway, but I also remember in other days, and I don't know about then when we had pumps outside. You better not pour all that water out. Because you're going to need to prime that pump again. But I know there are some other folks who didn't have that privilege. And they had a well outside with a bucket. Some didn't have a well. They had a creek. Not the one in the back. The one that flowed in the backyard. They go there and carry water to the house. Well, for the Jews, any water they used in their homes had to be carried from some well or some spring. And you can count on this. When they were carrying that water back to the house, they did it carefully. Why? That's right. It was hard to come by. The country was arid and dry. And so the survival of their crops depended on rain. If the rains were late, the seeds would not germinate. I read that to raise grapes... For a vine to produce 100 gallons 
I'm sorry, one gallon of wine required 100 gallons of water. Whoa. But Christ isn't talking about physical water here. And so symbolically, water came to represent their deliverance in the wilderness when they were actually dying of thirst, literally. But what they don't know now, they're dying what? Of thirst spiritually. And Jesus made a claim here. And it reflects both not only the availability, but the abundance of God's provision. And Jesus said, if you'll come to me, I promise you rivers of living water, and I promise you bread from heaven so that you will never thirst or you will never hunger anymore. And guess what? They missed it. They missed it. But let's talk about us. I think it is pitiful when we don't recognize the abundance we have in Christ. Think about that. And we do that when we discount his blessings, we put them aside, instead of depending on his constant provision. We do that when we crave what we do not need, instead of saying, Lord, show me what I really need. And we do that when we lean on the comforts of this life, Instead of looking to the eternal life that Jesus Christ has promised us. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad for the living water. Thank you, Lord. Let's stop there for tonight.